0: When what you carry eats you up. We're in the series Blame Game Victims, and we've unmasked the four invaders that compete for control of our hearts. Now, of the four, there is one that is very obvious and may very well be the most dangerous. That culprit is anger. When anger is left unrestrained with uncontrollable intensity, it leaves a trail of destruction behind it. But you know what? After all the theater and all the dramatics are removed, we are left with the most basic of human experiences. Namely, we are not getting our way. We have seen in this series that the life, love, and relational experience of an angry person are approached with the expectation of getting paid back. Remember, Anger says, you owe me. And the reality concerning this payback revolves around the fact that anger is not concerned about who is going to pay, but it is very concerned that someone is going to pay. Given this, is it any surprise to know that the remedy for anger is forgiveness? We've seen that guilty people need to get in the habit of confessing. But angry people need to develop the habit of forgiving. And I think that you would agree that while it may sound easy, it's not at all easy. I mean, have you ever tried this forgiveness thing only to realize that nothing really changed? Maybe we don't see the results and, and real change because where the meaning of forgiveness is concerned, there is much confusion. When we speak about forgiveness, there's at least three different types of people. The first type believes that they should forgive, but can't get up the coverage to actually do it. The second type feels that they would be letting the offender off the hook, and that doesn't seem quite right. The third type state That they have gone through the motions of forgiveness, but those old feelings and memories keep coming back, which leaves them with the question of whether they've ever really forgiven at all. So, the real questions here are, how do you forgive someone? How do you know if you have? What if the other person is a repeat offender? What if you don't have any idea how to get in touch with the offending party? What if the idea of getting in touch with them makes you nauseous? And then here's the hardest question of all. What if they're dead? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.31, and I'm going to read from the NIV version. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. We are commanded to get rid of anger. Now, when you look at that on the surface, does it even make any sense? I mean, really, how do you rid yourself of an emotion? Well, the thing we have to look at here is that the Greek term translated here as get rid of Actually means to remove or to separate yourself from, and and a good example of that is um, I remember growing up we used to go to an amusement park and you know they 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 had these uh, fun houses where you walked through, and invariably they all had. These cobwebs all throughout this place. So you're walking in the dark, barely getting through this thing, and you're feeling all these cobwebs all over you. And th- the first thing, the first thing that comes to your mind, or, or the first, your first reaction is, "Get it off! Get it off! Get it off of me! Get it off quick, quick!" And um, some people may experience that when going through, like if you walk through a uh, spider web or something similar to that. And, uh, so the, the, the point is, is that the reaction is that you want it off and you want it to get off quick. And that is what we're supposed to get out of uh, this verse. That's what that term get rid of means. And also in the same verse, did you notice that Paul uses the word all? In this verse, we see every relational wedge that Paul can think of. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. And just to make sure he got it all, he adds every form of malice. And malice, of course, is general ill will towards another person. So what Paul was doing here is covering all the bases. So I asked the question, what, what, what negative emotion are you harboring? And the idea here is, no matter what negative emotion, whatever negative emotion you're harboring, regardless of whom you are harboring it against, you need to get rid of it. Now, when you think about Paul, there are those that would say, wait, hey, wait a minute. This guy lived 2,000 years ago, it was a different time then, and uh, he has no business telling me uh, what I should be doing now. Now, of course, we know that uh, the Bible has many writers, but it has only one author, and that author, of course, is God. Um, however, okay, people will make the point that uh, Paul was living way back when, and um, if a stranger came up to you nowadays, now right today in this present time, and said to you that you needed to get rid of all your bitterness, you had, you needed to get rid of all your bitterness that you had towards your wife or your son or your daughter or whatever the case may be, uh, you would probably tell him that, uh, you know, mind your own business. It's none of your business. The best part is, though, that I'm willing to bet that you, if given the, ch- the, the chance to, to give your story, to present your story and present your case, that by the time you were done doing that, I'm willing to bet that um, you probably would make a good case that payback was necessary for whatever that other person did to you. You didn't deserve to be treated the way you were treated, and they don't deserve to get away with it. Now, getting back to Paul, you have to consider some things. God had writers write... um, at different times, from different places, to different cultures, and in different cultures, and he everything he did and everything he had them right was for a reason. Now, when you consider Paul, Paul, in talking about this subject area, about forgiveness, Paul was writing this from a Roman prison. He was in a cell in a Roman prison. And if you know anything about Roman prisons, it's not like the prisons we have today. They were places that, man, you don't want your an animal to be in there. And Paul was arrested unjustly, and he was extradited to Rome. He had been awaiting trial for more than a year when he wrote these words. And what was worse, the political climate in Rome was definitely not favorable to Christians. And in spite of all these less than ideal circumstances, Paul instructs believers to rid themselves of any traces of bitterness and anger. I'm sure this was meant for Paul to hear He was writing it, but he needed to hear this for his own good, for his own sanity, being in that prison. But when we look at it, when we look at the actual instruction, we have to ask, is this even possible? Is this even a possibility that we can do this? Now, Paul seems to think that it can be done. There's no qualification to his words, he doesn't give anybody an out or a point to extreme situations as exceptions. And you have to again ask yourself, what if he's right? What if there is a way to rid ourselves of our bitterness and anger? We already discussed the consequences of walking around with a heart full of anger. And if you struggle with any of the items that Paul put forth in that list, bitterness, rage, anger, any form of violence, then you don't need to be told by anyone how complicated life can actually get. But still, when we look at it, it doesn't sound realistic. I mean, come on, your anger is simply a response to the people and events around you. You're just reacting, right? It's not your fault that your boss is an idiot, that he's incompetent. And not only is it not your fault, but uh, there's nothing you can do about it. And so what happens when you drive home? You drive home in a state of rage every day, every afternoon, same thing. And this can be said of so many different circumstances. And You put your own... uh, put your own situ- yourself in your own situation and uh, you could fill in the blanks there. How can you possibly get rid of your anger when your anger is simply a justified response to stuff you have no control over? The bottom line is you are a victim. And see, the key word there is justified your reaction, your anger is a justified response. Hurt, rejection, criticism, stuff not just not going our way, all of these things leave us feeling like victims. Is it a surprise that we lash out? Is it a surprise that we have short fuses? I mean, really, who can blame us, right? Victims are powerless. Victims don't have control over their lives. Victims are at the mercy of others. Victims can only react, right? Victims are held prisoner by circumstances beyond their control. These feelings of victimization is uh, or is what we what we use as fuel to justify our excuses let me say it again these feelings of victimization fuel our justification and our excuses you see because you have to know that a victim will always have an excuse and when you think about it a victim can write off just about any kind of behavior. I mean, really, right? Look at the way he's been treated. Look at what she's had to endure. What should we expect from someone who suffered like that? So what happens is pain and hurt create an unsalable wall of excuses and rationalizations. A victim will always have an excuse. And then what happens is, in time, we start to believe the lie. It's okay for you to behave the way you do. You have no choice. For you, this behavior is perfectly acceptable. You're under no obligation to change, are you? You have every right to be the way you are. There is no incentive to change. It's always easier to stay the same and make excuses. Victims get comfortable. They don't want to be proactive about changing. They want to be proactive about making sure that the person who hurts them pays. And so what happens? We spend our energy telling our sad stories rather than taking responsibility for our behavior. We open the door of our hearts and welcome in the Trojan horse of bitterness. And there it stands, a monument a constant reminder of a debt someone has yet to pay. Somebody owes us. And in time, what happens is everybody owes us. So when we read what Paul said, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of valice, we think there's no way, there's no way. I can do that. It's out of my control. I'm just responding to the people and the world around me. I can't get rid of that stuff, so don't even ask me to try. So, is there a secret answer here? What did Paul know that we don't know? What moved him to to speak so authoritatively? to people whose circumstances he was unfamiliar with. Well, in Ephesians 4.32, which is the second verse, uh, the verse after, of course, what we just talked about, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of vows, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. That's what Paul knew that we don't. In contrast to the bitterness and brawling, Paul suggests that we extend kindness and compassion to those who have wronged us. And then, what do we see in the verse? That word forgiving. Forgiveness, in fact is the means by which we are to do away with our bitterness, rage, and anger. That forgiveness is what enables us to be kind and compassionate to people who have given us neither kindness nor compassion. See, if Paul had stopped right there, then we would be well within our right to just retreat to a well rehearsed excuses about how badly we've been treated and how unfair life has been we could without a doubt we could argue convincingly that the people who fuel our anger they don't they don't deserve to be forgiven in fact, most of them don't consider themselves in need of forgiveness because they aren't even aware that they've done anything wrong. But Paul didn't stop there. Paul frames the concept of forgiveness in a way that should cause us, cause all of us to pause and reconsider this ancient concept. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. And that's, again, Ephesians 4.32. And again, we as Christians know that this is not Paul writing, this is God writing through Paul. God authoring what Paul is writing. So, the kindness and compassion Paul refers to are to be fueled by an attitude of forgiveness. But, but the, mean, the real meaning here is, though, that it's not just any kind of forgiveness. We're, we're supposed to extend an attitude of forgiveness that mirrors the kind that God extended toward us in Christ. That little phrase, just as, should be bolded, highlighted, eyes doubled in font size, and written upon the tablets of your heart. You see, it carries more significance than we could ever understand in, with our finite brains. Just as is what gave Paul confidence to call people he barely knew to a standard of behavior that most would consider unrealistic. But what's more important? The more important uh, aspect here or the more important meaning here is just as, those two words, that phrase, just as is the key to avowing God to rid our hearts of the bitterness and resentment that have the potential to reach their destructive tentacles into every important relationship that we have. Just as redefines and upgrades the meaning of forgiveness. In Matthew eighteen, twenty-one to thirty-five, Jesus redefined forgiveness for all of us. Peter understood his responsibility to forgive, but he wasn't sure how far to take it. What do you do about the person who hurt you over and over again? So Peter pulled Jesus aside and asked, how many times? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So in other words, Paul was saying, I mean, Peter was saying, okay, Jesus, when when is enough enough? When is enough enough? How many times do I have to forgive? When is it all right not to forgive? Peter wanted to do the right thing? That's not a question. Of course he wanted to do the right thing, but come on, we all have our limits. Where is the justice in a system where forgiveness is offered at every turn? So Paul, uh, Peter... puts forth what he believed would be a very generous answer. He said, what about seven times? He knew that Jesus' perspective on things was different than that of the religious teachers. But by asking how often shall I forgive, Peter revealed that his own misunderstanding of the nature of forgiveness... Peter, just like us, he assumed that forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. And just like a lot of us, many of us, Peter was willing to stretch it a bit just to be a nice guy. He was willing to go as many as seven rounds with the same person over the same issue. But after that, at some predetermined point, he was ready to say no more. After all, forgiveness has its limits, right? Everybody knows that. Now, can you see Jesus? What what did Jesus... Jesus probably smiled, you know, put his hand on Peter's shoulder and said, you know what? I'll tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. And before Peter could even respond, Jesus offered one of his most intriguing parables. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be, to, to be sold to, to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You see what Jesus did in this parable, and what it made—what made it so helpful to uh, the people hearing it, and for us—is that because this is an emotionally charged topic when we talk about forgiveness. But by, he presented this parable in terms that everybody could understand. He took the mystery completely out of it. And simply put, he said basically that forgiveness is the decision to cancel a debt. It's so simple, so practical, but it is so easily missed. Forgiveness is the decision to cancel debt. A debt. Whenever someone hurts you, there's a sense in which they have taken something from you. A debt is incurred. I mean, that's what we've been talking about in this series. It's all about uh, uh, the debt-to-debtor relationships that are created when these invaders take over our hearts. And uh, we looked at this uh, when we discussed guilt. If somebody gossips about you, it amounts that amounts to that person stealing your good reputation. If an employer fires a worker unjustly, that employer robs the worker of his his or her financial security. If a man's unfaithful to his wife, he robs her of his emotional security, and perhaps even more than that. Whenever there's hurt, there is theft. There's an imbalance. Somebody owes someone. That's why we say things like, I'm going to get even with him. You see, in order to achieve justice, a transaction must take place that transfers something back to the victim. Could be an apology, could be a favor, money, some other form of restitution, But the tension will always remain until the debt is settled. You see, in Jesus' parable, the master was going to settle his debt with the servant by selling the servant, his wife, his children, and all his possessions, something he had every right to do under ancient law. The servant, on the other hand, did the only thing he could. He pleaded for mercy. Then he said, did something that was a little crazy or absurd. He promised to pay his debt. 10,000 talents was an enormous amount of money, more money than the servant would make in his lifetime. His debt was beyond his ability to repay. Fortunately for him, his master was a merciful man. The master took pity on his servant and canceled his debt. He decided to forgo his right to be paid back. And you see, that is the essence of forgiveness. It's a decision to cancel a debt. Forgiveness equals canceling a debt. But Jesus continued the parable. He said, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But what happens? We find the forgiven servant, the one that was forgiven, in the same position his master was in, the place of power his buddy owed him a hundred denarii. And that was a small amount that his fellow servant probably could have come up with given a bit of time. And we would expect that this man whose master's debt had just been forgiven to extend the same grace to his fellow servant, right? I mean, that's just the right thing to do. Instead... He had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. He chose to hold this unfortunate fellow to the original agreement. And even worse than that, he had him thrown in prison until he or a family member could raise the money to pay the debt in full. And we, uh, most of us know the end of this, but... When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in in, and he said, you wicked servant, I cancel all that debt of yours. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And we know the outcome. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back all he owed. And rightly so. Anybody who's that ungrateful deserves to have to pay his debt. And and the, the best part of this is that it, this wasn't was extraordinary punishment. This was simply a matter of holding the servant to his end of the original arrangement. He owed, and he would have to pay. So far, so good. But here's the zinger. Here's the zinger. And this is the part that nobody expected. So if Paul was still wondering what any of this had to do with the original question, it was about to become painfully clear. Jesus said, This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So if the parable wasn't clear at the beginning, it was certainly clear now. The king in the parable represents God. The servant who had his debts forgiven represents anybody who has had his or her sin debt canceled by God. And wouldn't you know it? That second servant is anybody we are holding something against because of something they have done to us. These are the people who have offended us, hurt us, embarrassed us, abandoned us, or rejected us. These are the people who owe us. The people against whom we have a legitimate case. So Jesus' words couldn't be any clearer. They couldn't ring any louder. Cancel their debt. Forgive them or else. Maybe you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. I've already been hurt once. I'm the victim. And now you're telling me that if I don't grant this person forgiveness, which he doesn't deserve, then God's coming after me too. What's up, man? What's up with that? What what Jesus was saying here is that this is how my father will treat each of you. When he says that, when Jesus says that, this is how my father will treat each of you. He's basically saying that or basically go we don't really know what with the, with with absolute certainty what he's referring to, but what this was meant, these words were meant as a stern warning to those who refused to forgive. So Peter got his answer. Forgive every time. If you don't, you will pay dearly. So maybe Peter saw the, uh, the irony. Maybe he didn't. Peter could be very stubborn sometimes, or actually a lot of the time. If we hold out waiting to be paid back, for the wrongs done to us, we will be the ones who pay. If, on the other hand, we cancel the debts owed to us, we will be set free. And see, if we have a negative reaction to this parable, it just shows how naive we really are. You see, because from our perspective we have every right to hold out until we are paid back. But from God's perspective it is possibly the most self-destructive thing we could do. There's not a literal prison for those who harbor resentment in their hearts. But we certainly put ourselves in a prison of sorts when we cling to the debts owed to us by others. And that's Maybe what Jesus had in mind when he gave such a stern warning if we demand payment, we will pay. And his warning was severe. And most likely the reason for that is because the consequences of ignoring it are severe. Unresolved anger has multi generational implications. and if your experience with anger is anything like mine or others uh, i mean you have to know that jesus warning is an i i get mad quite often i mean i mean unfortunately i do get i do get angry I, and and part of this is our programming from from the day we were from when we were little kids when we were little kids we learned anger is a conditioned response Anger is a conditioned response which we learn by repetition and through external a uh, linking to external circumstances. So um, we have to work hard at at breaking that. Uh, anger is something we have to really work hard at breaking, breaking the response to it, breaking the response to anger. So. You have to know then if you have an experience with anger which is like I said like mine or others that are that are just like us that Jesus warning is not an exaggeration. It's exactly what we should expect from a savior who came to earth to rescue us from sin. You see we shouldn't be showing off our pain like it was a trophy. It's not a story that we should be telling. Because it is a poison, a potential poison to your soul. To refuse to forgive is to choose to self-destruct. And if you study it out, our human bodies um, our human bodies uh, really suffer from this self-destruction. When we refuse to forgive, it has it takes a toll on our bodies. Uh, that's food for another day. That's uh, something we'll be getting into in the future. But for now, you have to know that to refuse to forgive equals self-destruction destruction. So again, the title of today's message, I'm going to leave you with that. When what you carry eats you up.